Hey guys, what's up? It is week 307. I have a bunch of reviews for you, so let's dive right into this. First up is the 1977-76 flick directed by John Frankenheimer from Arrow Films, Black Sunday. Not to be confused, of course, with the 1960 film Black Sunday by Mario Bava, the gothic Italian horror classic. Uh, This is kind of a classic of its own, you know, kind of different, obviously, than the other Black Sunday. But it has Robert Shaw and Bruce Dern in it. Uh, So, you know, I'm a big Bruce Dern fan. Almost everything I've ever seen Bruce Dern in, he does a tremendous job from The Burbs to Silent Running to Hateful Eight. You know, uh, Bruce Dern is just an amazing actor. He's been in a million films. So this one... um, this is a movie that I'd always seen in passing, and I really didn't know too much about it, but um, it's kind of in the vein of the disaster movies of the 70s, like Earthquake and Towering Inferno, Poseidon, Adventure, all those kind of movies like that, right? But uh, it's a little bit different. It also has the terrorist kind of aspect, like Day of the Jackal and stuff like that, which Arrow also put out. So it's these kind of two different things here. So uh, basically, this is based off a book. And it was inspired by um, basically the kidnapping of the Olympic team. A bunch of them were murdered. Uh, I think all of them were murdered. And somebody wrote a book off that. And that's basically kind of what this is coming from. So Robert Shaw is an Israeli kind of like equivalent to the CIA. And he's basically after this terrorist cell. And in the very beginning, there's this amazing kind of like invasion of him and his team sneaking in and taking out all these terrorists. And there's a great chance when he has uh, a time to take out one of the main terrorists, but it's a female. She's in the shower and he kind of freezes up. He's a little older. He lets her go. Uh, Obviously, that will come to bite him in the ass later on. So apparently that terrorist is planning a huge kind of um, blimp explosion during the Super Bowl. And during this Super Bowl kind of stuff, we have a bunch of, you know, people actually, Franco Harris that played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, all these kind of actual Terry Bradshaw football players that are there, which is really cool, too. And they incorporate reality with the fiction, which is neat. But uh, the first two thirds of this movie, it's about two hours and I think 20 minutes or something along those lines. It's a fairly long film. Um, The first two thirds are kind of like the cat and mouse, Robert tracking these two terrorists down and all these other terrorists in the group and you kind of see how they work and how they get everything together and there's also attempts at both their lives all these kind of things Robert Shaw's in a hospital at one point we have like a kind of a godfather style almost uh, killing there all all that kind of stuff going on there we have uh, a bunch of characters established um, and whatnot but it all comes back uh, to this final uh, kind of conflict at the Super Bowl which is really suspenseful Um, this movie shot amazingly you know John Frankenheimer is no stranger to action anybody's ever seen Ronin or he also did the French Connection part two and he did e, the train as well he did a bunch of movies and later on in his career he did the island of Dr. Moreau the 96 version which was taken away from Richard Stanley which kind of didn't come out great and the reindeer games which didn't come out great all sorts of stuff that was kind of crapped on later in his career but early on in his career he had a lot of amazing films John Frankenheimer also did seconds just a really um I guess, you know, prolific and uh, acclaimed director in John Frankenheimer. And uh, this one is pretty great, um, to be honest. I I was really taken back uh, how it was shot. Some of the tracking shots, the crane shots, the helicopter shots, and the plane shots are all amazing. Um, there's great how they cover the Super Bowl going around the stands and everything. All they'll be on like a car driving, and they'll pull out and they'll go to the stands. And it's really funny too because like I've been thinking a lot, you know, um, back when you had shots like that, it was a, like a sign of like budget and quality and just like really hard to do. And nowadays, when you see a shot like that, you just automatically, well, that's a drone and it's going to be a shot of this. It just becomes like this typical, very easy to do when filmmakers 
had to struggle to do something or some things were certainly limited, they kind of like thought outside their box. When it's everything's at their fingertips, somehow stuff becomes more stale. I know that sounds terrible. I know it is. But it's kind of like basically when I was a kid... I still do this, but a lot of people, you know, they sought after a lot of things more. Now the internet, they have absolutely everything they could ever want at their fingertips, and it seems that a lot of people aren't as interested in, you know, finding gems or, or deep diving into certain genres. They kind of just let the streaming services, whatever's put forth towards them, even though there's a, a million movies you could research online. So you have everything at your fingertips yet. So it seems sometimes when it's harder to do, uh, it seems more special, or maybe it's just done a little bit better. I don't know. But anyways, the camera work here is it's phenomenal. Uh, the editing is interesting. But really what kind of won me over completely for this movie was Bruce Dern's performance. There's a scene in here where Bruce Dern is an ex-Vietnam vet, and he's basically you know one of these people that is disenfranchised, dis, just disgusted and disgruntled with American, you know, America in general um, and his family and everyone else, and he just generally seems like one of these characters that would carry out this kind of attack. And it's really kind of obviously hits home today because this problem has existed for a very long time. You know, shooters, terrorists, all these kind of domestic terrorists. It's been there forever, and a lot of the 70s movies really tackled it. You see a lot of that in there. Like I the Day of the Jackal is another one that's really suspenseful and really intense. There's one from 1970 I'm trying to think of, which uh, was about assassination attempt, which is really good that I watched. Uh, Kino put it out. I cannot put my finger. It's more of a thriller than a horror film. But, you know, kind of in that vein. Uh, I thought the casting, like I said, was great. The end shoot uh, shootout on the helicopters is phenomenal versus the blimp. I just love that stuff. Yeah, it's just a really special kind of movie, and there's some really twisted moments. It's violent, too. When people get shot, the squibs go off. I didn't expect the violence to be honest um the special features are pretty great on this we have a commentary by uh film scholar josh nelson it could be tomorrow brand new visual essay uh by critic sergio angeli exploring the film's adaptation and production it's placed within the pantheon of 70s terrorism thrillers that's very interesting learn a lot the director is john frankenheimer an hour-long portrait of the director from 2003 including interviews with frankenheimer kurt douglas samuel jackson roy scheider rudd steiger and others that's great stuff because it's kind of like a little frame on, on, on john frankenheimer's past and there's interviews and footage of him and all these famous actors talking about how to just work with them. It looks great. It sounds great. Uh, there's a, a 1.2.0 and there's a 5.1 surround sound, which comes across really great. There's subtitles, of course. It's region locked. Uh, great release. I'm glad I watched this one. Uh, really good stuff. Now I can say that both Black Sunday movies I've seen have been top-notch. Good stuff. Okay, the next one here is continuing the Lucas Mudinson collection here, this monstrosity here, and the eight, nine films in here. And this is Mammon from 2009. And this was the first time time that Lucas got to work with uh, you know in English making the film completely in English here he had some kind of international stars in here and Michelle Williams and the other actor I can't think of off the top of my head but he looks very familiar I can't think he's not an American actor he's kind of a you know universe all the actors he takes place over three different countries I think uh, Singapore the Philippines and the United States if I'm not mistaken so essentially what we have here is um, a, like a, a game tech guy who makes games and does the technology and all this kind of stuff and he's like on a business trip in Singapore and um, or is it the Philippines? I, I mix those. I'm going to mix those two up. I'm sorry about that, guys. So essentially, he's kind of uh, away from his wife and Michelle Williams, who's this surgeon who's always busy. They have a young daughter at home, and they have a nanny who pretty much from um, Singapore, the Philippines, those two countries I'm mixing up, basically is ta takes care of the daughter. And it creates this kind of weird turmoil and these weird relationships amongst all of them. And they seem almost uh, at first like completely separate. But as it goes on, they have a lot of same themes and, and interesting kind of 
motifs and parallels going on throughout the entire story. So essentially, like I said, we have the the computer tech who of uh, the gamer tech who's in this country and he starts to have this relationship with this prostitute. And at first he, he seems to be almost as like kind of a protective nature towards her, but things start to like, you know, get a little bit further than he wants and that's kind of part of that going on. Well at the same time we have Michelle Williams who feels like she's losing a connection with her child because she's overworking, she's lonely without her husband. All these kind of things of this family kind of separating and breaking up, one on a, a trip, one overworking, and then one basically daughter kind of not really um, focusing in on her parents, more so focusing in on the, the nanny or the live-in kind of maid who has a son back home and family back home that she's doing this to, two sons actually, she's doing all this for. So it's like this kind of thing, these sacrifices that people do for their families and the maid and her have so much in common yet um, she can't help but see her daughter being stolen away from her uh, there's a lot of interesting things happening here and again it has, does have like kind of a couple moments that are really shocking it is a Lucas Moodison movie so that does tend to happen but uh, it shows you the kind of like where your priority should be or where you'll eventually come around to all these kind of things that are interesting it's, it's a, it's a well made drama it's well shot it's well edited definitely had a bigger budget than he's typically used to and he had more uh, stuff used at his fingertips and he used it well you know three different countries um three kind of main characters here more than that three basically storylines going on simultaneously all of which are interesting and good um there's a great scene where one of the older sons uh, from the maid is upset that her his her mother's not there you know and the grandmother says do you want to see why she goes to this place and and that seems really amazing i don't want to spoil everything but i was really impressed with this one i thought it was a really well-made movie this guy doesn't really make bad movies it's just that a lot of them aren't exactly the number one interesting thing that i'm going to focus on you know i'm more into the horror cult westerns but i love all films and i think that lucas mudenson is a hell of a director as far as the special features are concerned we have new interview with lucas mudenson moderated by film programmer sarah Lutton, new interview with line producer Molt uh, Forcell, moderated by film programmer Sarah Lutton, short promotional interviews with Moodinson and uh, Gail Garcia Bernal. So yeah, there we go. Um, if anybody's interested in checking this one out, it's pretty good. And the box set keeps getting different and they're all good films so far. Okay, now that we're getting close to ending the Lucas Moodinson collection, next week will be the last one. I'm starting another box set here, and this is from Intervision. That's right. And this is not typically something that's up my or in my wheelhouse. You guys know how I've talked about these kind of movies where they seem to be failures that a lot of people laugh at or enjoy. I'm not so sure if they enjoy them you know, on ironically or not, I'm not sure, but this is the Wings of Disaster, the Birdemic trilogy, and uh, I'm going to tackle the first Birdemic in here, all three are in here, of course, and all directed by the same guy, um, in 2013, if I can get this out of the box set here, in 2013, I believe he initially made this film, um, yeah, and it had like this immediate cult status, like it was kind of put on the same pedestal as The Room or Troll 2. Uh, it's a, a low budget film, a bird's ripoff, right? And it's by this Asian film director who's not American. But he went ahead and made this movie that originally I think he saw as this amazing suspense thriller or something along the lines. It's a story I've heard in the vein of an Alfred Hitchcock's Birds. He's a big Alfred Hitchcock fan. All his movies are inspired by that. Um, but here we go. You know, some things are universal in terms of filmmaking, you know, editing or sound or, you know, you know, acting. That stuff, like, it's universal. But, like, a lot of times we'll have, you know, people making movies in different countries about another country. So you get this, this weird disconnect where the person really doesn't understand the culture they're talking about. It happened in the 80s a lot if you look at stuff like Hack-A-Lantern. 
or Open House, you know, uh, Jag, Jag. But those movies somehow, especially Hack a Lantern, aka Halloween Night, ended up having a sense of entertainment because although it is awkward and doesn't really feel like the person grasped the concept of Halloween, we still have you know special effects, uh, fairly well, you know, do, do, decent cinematography, decent acting, decent score. You know, the principles of filmmaking at least decently done. This is not the case. This is a movie where the director. It's a $9,000 budget, so it's like, it is what it is. There's tons of locations, so you got to give them props there. There's a lot of cast of characters in here, so you got to give them there. So, so it's ambitious, yes, it, although it is a remake of Burt's. Um, but everything else is just terrible. The script is terrible. The sound editing is terrible. The acting is terrible. The dialogue is terrible. The social message is ham-fisted and insanely annoying because it's every three and a half seconds. It's basically message. It's just such a poorly written, poorly constructed film. Now, watching the special features, you can see that the director kind of kind of embraced this. Like, he'll have screenings of it and say everybody shows up gets a shot of tequila. So I feel like he is enjoying himself to a certain extent. But I can't help but think that there is a giant group of people that are just, like, kind of celebrating his failure and either laughing at him or laughing with him either way it's just kind of a strange thing for me it's not something I've ever really been into you know what I mean where like the Sharknado movies are purposely bad and they know they're bad well Birdemic started off as something that he purposely he was trying very hard and a lot of people it, it seemingly a lot of people caught on that and they just they're laughing at it the thing that interests me about the movie in general the only thing that really does interest me is that it's obviously well it's part of you know the the cult world now in film and how it how it sits in that piece of history of course it's there but also the fact that you can see how a foreigner from a different country can interpret how america is or he's basically trying to recreate that american dream in the very beginning of the film you see well i just made a big business deal i'm making a lot of money i'm doing great i meet a beautiful supermodel it's so on the nose you know the joke where the streets are paved with gold all that kind of land of opportunity this kind of old mentality that people used to have when they you know, thought of the United States of America. So that's there. And that kind of has that idea of like, huh, that, that's kind of funny to see that and interesting. But the other things, the, the, the social and environmental messages are so in your face, it's insane. People come out and just say random things. It's just the editing, the sound editing is terrible too. From one scene to another, one cut, you'll, the, the person never got room tone. Just stuff like that. And it just, you you hear the static in the back, you'll hear loud noises, jumps in audio. It's just, it, it's, terrible and like for me the first five ten minutes people are like ha huh, this is really bad but then it's an hour and a half and you're like i've had enough i get it i get it and like it does kind of fall into depths of more ridiculousness right and you could get some laughs out this is a group film you watch this with a group of people you laugh at the failures not something i particularly like doing anyways because hey it's hard as hell to make a film and this guy put his money up and you know i'm glad he got some sort of success but i can't celebrate this kind of stuff it's not my thing um but the cgi is also abysmal comedic of course um it's just abysmal in every aspect and a lot of people this there's people out there that love this kind of stuff they love you know uh uh doing the uh the riff rack tracks whatever they want to do that they're home the mystery science theater treatment they love doing that stuff or maybe they just enjoy that this guy went out and had fun making a movie um i guess the other ones would probably be more self-aware after this one came out but you know i've never watched the room either it just doesn't it's it just doesn't tickle my fancy like stuff like troll 2 yes i get that it's bad and i don't love troll 2 but i do enjoy some aspects of troll 2 a lot of, you know, the Bruno Mattei movies, are like, oh, it sucks. It's like, yes, they're ridiculous and silly, but at the same time, I kind of like them. But they actually have stuff that is not easy to do. Explosions, you know. They have character actors. They have stuff that is like a real film. They're on location. Like, these aren't. 
So I'm sorry to say that. The cops are coming. The, the the bad movie police are coming to arrest me if you heard that siren in the back. As far as special features are concerned, this looks like the old disc that they released under the Severn label. And then they have two and three on the Intervision label here. Audio commentary with director James Nugan. Audio commentary stars Alan Begg and Whitney Moore. Deleted scenes of Redemic Experience Tour featurette. James Nugan on movie close-up. Movie head. The James Nugan story teaser. Uh, Birdemic Experience. Teaser trailer. All that kind of stuff here. So, yeah. Uh, he basically calls himself the master of the romantic thriller. So it is what it is. Most of the actors didn't go on to do anything else, but I think Whitney Moore did. Um, it's just there's characters introduced, and five minutes later they're killed in a, in a very dramatic death. It's just, it is whatever. It's not good. And this is a, but this does call, this is for certain people. And you'll know if you'll like it or not. You know, it, it's it's a very niche kind of thing for people. So it's birdemic. Um, shock and terror. Who will survive? Hopefully the viewer. Okay, next up is one from Vinegar Syndrome Archive, and this is uh, Dog Tags, a.k.a. Platoon from Hell, I believe. And this was made in 1987. It's directed by Romano uh, Scofolini. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he directed the 1981 kind of slasher, sicky, Nightmares or Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. This actually stars the uh, lead guy from Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. And this is a really crazy, weird Vietnam film from 1987. It's an hour and 50 minutes long. But I must read on the back here. This is newly scanned and restored in 4K from its 35mm interpositive. Now this freaking thing here, it was basically, and they didn't know where the English long version was, and they found it, and they kind of like put this together, and the all like long cut is from my understanding. So like originally, if you saw this on bootleg or on VHS, this is a different cut. Uh, I thought this looked tremendous, like uh, physically, like uh, visually, it was amazing. Like I thought this was much better looking than I thought it would look. Uh, as far as the elements, they must have done a really great job. And it was a better movie than I expected. I didn't really know what to expect, you know. I had seen Nightmares and Damage Brain, and it was a taken fairly serious kind of slasher, maniac-style thing. Halloween maniac kind of mix. But this one uh, was more serious, you know. I, I watched a lot of the uh, Italian kind of Vietnam movies, you know. If you have, like, the Bruno Mattei movies, but then you have the Antonio Margoretti movies, like Cannibal Apocalypse, which I love, The Last Hunter, Tiger Joe, all those kind of movies, The Last Tornado, all these kind of Vietnam movies, non-exploitation. Um, but I didn't expect this one to be as sincere as it was. And uh, a lot of the other ones, I feel, are more exploitative, although I love them. Um, Cannibal Apocalypse, I think, is a masterpiece. I love that movie. But a lot of them, like Last Hunter, although it has a dark tone and it does saying something, I think it is more exploitive than this, even though this has nasty stuff going on too in it. So essentially what we have here is there's a, a couple of guys and they break out uh, some of their uh, for, the other their troop out of this uh, Vietnamese uh, jail right in the beginning of the film. The, basically, there's a structure basically where somebody's going to basically, basically keep saying that way too much this week. But uh, the guy is going through and he's kind of explaining a story and he's talking to someone to learn of the story. So it's basically bookend by this uh, reporter of sorts, journalist, finding the story. And then the middle center is this huge chunk, this Vietnam adventure. I, I say adventure lightly. It's hell. It's complete hell. But uh, four or five people are trying to escape from this Vietnamese prison and a couple guys break them out and there's like a, a German photographer in there, there's Jim Gaines from uh, Zombie 4 After Death there's a couple other familiar faces of course you have uh, Bird Stafford from Nightmares and Damaged Brain and this group of guys uh, uh, while they're waiting to get evacuated they get a call from a commanding officer uh, who's in a captain something, he's a new, new scum he's in a million movies, you know, a lot of these kind of Philippine movies, Italian movies shot in the Philippines and basically the, he tells them no, you guys have a job to do you have to follow the, find this downed helicopter 
and get the contents out and, and be picked up. So throughout the entire film, they're on this mission going through the jungle and there's this thick fog and it just seems miserable. It's beautifully shot, although it's scary. There's lots of great scenic stuff. And eventually they get picked off until they find something special in the cargo pit of the plane in the water, which is a great scene. And they decide to do something with it. But, uh, you know, it's about about corruption, not just, you know, a war. It's about corruption within the war. Uh, so the acting is really solid, you know, for the most part. I think all the actors, uh, the major players are good. I think that the cinematography is great, especially the last shot and the shots of, like, the fog and people walking in. I think the special effects are really solid. Somebody has a leg amputated, which is really nasty. Um, and, you know, I think the sets are great. They built all those sets, uh, the cave, all the great stuff. Way better than I expected, to be honest. The movie's much better than expected. Now, I do prefer Cannibal Apocalypse and The Last Hunter, though. You know what? This one could beat The Last Hunter eventually. I think on another watch, I, I think I would appreciate how well done and serious it is, to be honest. And saying something and um it's very interesting that the director was actually a vietnamese a vietnam photographer he freelanced for and he took pictures for uh france and italy and all that kind of stuff and he has an interview on here and he talks about that it's like 50 minutes long he talks about how he he got in there to vietnam and was taking the photography and how the film got its production all that stuff super interesting Oliver Stone uh, basically was asking, uh, his production was asking him how he, they were getting dailies while they were in the Philippines. Super interesting stuff here, to be honest. And, and I have to admit, this is a really good release. This is a really solid release. This is the kind of releases I like to see. Movies that, you know, I never thought would get Blu-ray. Movies that I heard about in passing but didn't know how good they were. You know, maybe one person be like, yeah, it's pretty good. That's it. That's all you ever hear. But no, this is a damn good movie. This is a strong film. This is, it's well made, much, much better made than you would expect, um, and dark and depressing and just interesting too, at the same time. Um, so basically on here, we have newly scanned and restored 4k from its original 35 interpositive, the dogs of war 52 minute interview with writer director Romano Scavini, accepting the mission eight minute interview with executive producer, Arthur Shaw Waltzer, alternate ending from international version, trailer, teaser, all that kind of stuff there. But anyways, uh, great stuff. I recommend you pick this up from BSA if it's still in stock. Um, this is one of their coolest releases, I think. Okay. Next up, it was sent to me to review by Harry Collins, AKA Nathan Hine, and it is Homicidal Harry. Now, I can't remember the director's, I'll mispronounce the director's last name, so I'm not going to try, but it's actually directed by a first-time director who pops up in some of Harry Collins' movies and helps on a lot of the independent stuff there. Bob, uh, Bob, also, I'm sorry about that, Bob. I probably mispronounced your name, so I'm not going to bother saying it. My bad. He also has a role in the film, um, but yeah, Harry Collins and his whole crew and all the people that make films there are really nice guys. Uh, you know, Harry Collins did the Sidling Hill movie. He had a couple more Last Days of Livermore, if I'm not mistaken. So really cool guy. He actually popped up on the channel, and his friends are He's also a nice guy. I met the director of this one. So uh, essentially, yeah, this one is uh, a basic kind of a plot in a lot of ways on paper. Uh, a mentally, you know, damaged person, a person with a lot of mental illness and violent tendencies is released from a group home because in this one, this way is fun. They basically say that uh, politicians, tell, they can't hold people here indefinitely. Uh, prison guard there is not very happy about it. He is released and like uh, he goes on a crazy killing spree until he finds, well, he as an initial run in he finds this kind of abandoned house, the Brinkner house, and makes it his own, makes it a bloodbath house. So uh, essentially, this movie is uh, following Harry Collins' character around, and Harry is this like kind of a hulking kind of guy. 
and he has an inner monologue. He has voices in his head. And eventually, after he gets his kind of mask, this is kind of like the birth of a slasher, right? He gets his little uh, iconic mask that he wears in his videos. He gets this mask, and they kind of show when and the voices be, take over, like the, the become that mask, and they're talking to him. So he always has the voices in his head, and he stops taking his medicine, and it's just kind of pushing him over the edge. Kind of reminds me a bit of old Buttonface from Nightbreed, the original book, and, and the Cabal, the Clyde Barker book, the mask would talk to him, old Buttonface and tell uh, Decker to kill people. And, and that's kind of what we have here, the mask kind of pushing him forward to commit these murders. Uh, so essentially, it, it, it totally, I would say it's a, it's a little it's a little strange because it's dark in places and messed up and, and saying some things about, you know, people being released or that shouldn't be released, all this kind of stuff there. But at the same time, it does have an element of dark comedy. Uh, you know, Harry Collins dumping the, the bodies out the window off the roof is clearly played for a comic gag visually, and it works. Um, my favorite part of the movie you know, Harry Collins is pretty good in this. Nathan Hine, he's good. He's solid. Uh, he, you believe him. He's big. He's scary. Um, he's goofy, too. He's like kind of like a silly killer, but scary at the same time, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, uh, but the, the best gag to me was a, a pair of group, a, a, a pair of uh, ghost hunters show up. Uh, Darren Ricci and the director. Uh, Darren Ricci, I think, is a cinematographer. I know he's done cinematography on some of his other movies, but essentially one of his regulars that helps him on his films and other films, I believe he works on. So they show up and they're these ghost hunters. And uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I always tend to laugh at the ghost hunting stuff. And it just it's. It's silly to me. I'm sorry. I, not to judge anyone, but a lot of the stuff is just ridiculous. And they're obviously playing into that. But Darren is just hilarious in this because he's like, I feel bad vibes here. I see, I feel blood. And this whole part is really funny. And of course, you know, they're going to run into Harry Collins. Uh, it's gory. It has, it has some gore here and there, some nastiness. Uh, of course, there's going to be gore from Harry Collins. You know, he's got to have it in there. Homicidal Harry, he's got to have it. Um, I like the name. It's a good creation of a character, of a slasher. Um, I like where it's shot too. You know, it's got good Pennsylvania vibes, which I dig. And I just like movies that are shot in this location. I love all, you know, Romero's my favorite. So, and this one does have original quality. His films tend to capture that regional quality. Nobody really has any input. He's not out there making movies for anybody but himself. He's making, these guys are out there making movies for themselves. You know, all their movies that they work with. I, 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 I remind you, Harry Collins did not direct this. I want to make sure everybody knows that, but like they all are out there. They seem like they have a regional quality. They're making their movies for themselves. You know, they're not, hey, can we get this in a blockbuster? Can we, not blockbuster's dead, but can we get this in a red box? You know, it's the, the Amityville Ouija curse or the Amityville shark Ouija curse. Like, it's not that shit, right? It's not that kind of low budget shit. There's a charm to it. There's a, a, a DUI to it. So if you're interested in Homicidal Harry, check it out. It's gory. It's weird. Um, it, it's, it's The story is pretty straightforward, but there's some nice little quirks and touches that I really enjoyed. And and if you watch his YouTube channel, check it out. I think you'll enjoy him in it. And, uh, you know, like I said, uh, I'd like to uh, continue to see Bob do more movies. I'd like to see Harry Collins do more movies. I know he's got uh, Collins and Company coming out. So, yeah. Anyways, and it's kind of strange. You see, Harry Collins is not actually the actor's name. It's Nathan. And he plays this character, Harry Collins, kind of weird thing on his YouTube channel. It's 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 like a elaborate kind of weird thing there. It's kind of cool, really, to be. It's like it's kind of alter ego deal thing. And he's like a character and whatnot. So, yeah, check it out. Homicidal Harry. Uh, there'll be links below. I'm not sure if it's out just yet, but it should be. We just had a gory movie in Homicidal Harry. And uh, I, I think I'm going to top it with this one. This is Project Wolf Hunting. And this is a South Korean film. Right when I heard about this, I was like, I definitely got to check this one out. The runtime is about two hours and two minutes. So, uh, yeah. 
Um, we really, I rarely see a, a, a non-great South Korean movie, I'm going to be honest. So I saw the trailer on this, and I was like, that looks totally up my alley. And this is kind of in the vein of, you know, like a splatter horror film, but less, less horror, more splatter action, but it has horror obviously in it. So essentially what we have here is a, a group of like 40 criminals that uh, fled to the Philippines from South Korea. Um, they're all being extradited back to South Korea. They get this giant freighter because they had previous problems they get a giant freighter there is a group of police officers on here detectives like hard-boiled tough-ass detectives on here as well and then there is also you know people that work on the ship the captain the people in the boiler room all those kind of people but in the very bottom of this boat is this kind of crazy super soldier it's it's kind of like a universal soldier it's kind of like predator it's kind of like a zombie it's all these kind of things together it's in the bottom of the boat its eyes are sewed shut it's rotting it's gross um but what happens is uh there is a prison break on here there's a couple guys who aren't who they say they are and they're trying to break some of these these uh, gangsters out blood is spilled on the zombie and now we have cops fighting these criminals we have the criminals and the cops having to team up as, and fight this monster and this monster is a one man killing machine picks guys up breaks their necks turns them to goo so essentially the first hour of this movie i would say was phenomenal you know we have this setup we have all these characters there's a lot of funny lines there's a lot of established characters a lot of goofy criminals all look pretty different and memorable like weird shirts or quirks or stuff like that the cops are memorable everybody in here you're just like oh wow there's a lot of ruthless bad guys there's a lot of pre a good established characters for how many there are and then we start to pick them off and it's really entertaining but then about the the i not i like this movie don't get me wrong i really do i really enjoyed this film i think it's pretty great but about the second half of the movie we kind of dive into more of the serial i mean like superhero kind of style movie it's like almost like a weapon x program the whole thing seems like a big weapon x program you know old wolverine's weapon x program so so that's kind of what happens here and i'm not gonna lie i didn't enjoy the last act of the movie that much it was fine the action was cool, the the blood, the gore, the fighting, but I was digging this more when it was smaller and more like personal and more contained. When we kind of branch out, which is rare, right? When we kind of branch out and start introducing these other elements to the story, I'm just like, I don't really need an explanation. I really don't, and I don't like it, and I know it opens it up for more of a sequel or a bigger world, but I just don't care. I would have been perfectly fine with the one zombie creature or this one unstoppable monster on a boat with 40 criminals and 20 cops and 10 fucking passengers and whatnot and they have to survive against this monster that's fine enough and they keep adding like story elements to it where i'm like i don't care about any of this this doesn't interest me it's very it's very hey uh, a little bit of marvel dc in there we i don't need it like i mean if all superhero movies were this cool though i i'd like them all but uh, project wolf hunting is great uh, the special effects are great um they do get kind of repetitive in the kills you're like there's a lot of whole guys getting their necks broken and i don't mind because the practical stuff's great in here but they could have spiced it up considering that some of the people's deaths are amazing but it's still good really enjoyed it really great stuff probably will make my top 10 of the year i, I can't imagine 10 movies better than this to be honest but uh, the runtime is it's a two hours and three minutes, a little long. There's some special features behind the scenes making the alpha. And there is like a, a K-pop uh, star in this. And he's like a all like out gangster. He's completely tattooed. And you could tell like whoever made it or whoever wrote it, whatever. Somebody's in love with him because he's naked a lot and stuff like that. And you're just like, there's like, like going down his body. It's like, this happened a couple times. And maybe there's like doing it for the audience because he's such a, a popular person is from my understanding. But hey, it's fun. It's good. I would recommend it. Check it out. It's a lot, it's a lot of crazy fun. All right, we're going to get those 1981 movies. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell. 
because through that gateway, evil will invade the world. First up is 
an alien ripoff, of course, and it's also a precursor to the thing. And this is a VHS. It's a cut box. Look how bad this is cut. Whoever cut this did a terrible job. Um, this is The Intruder Within, a TV film. And who is the main guy in here? Chad Everett. He's pretty good in here. There's a couple other kind of like loosely familiar faces in here. And I had never watched this one, but hey, it's 1981. It's time to check this out. And I remember always uh, Elric Kane always talking about how great this one was and uh, pretty good for a TV movie. Although it does not compare to Dark Knight of the Scarecrow from the same year, also a TV film. But The Intruder Within. So it opens up and we got really good uh, kind of scenery here. I mean, really good atmosphere. It's uh, uh, drilling, uh, offshore drilling here. All the characters are pretty well established. They kind of get, they feel real. You know what I mean? Chad Everett and his crew feel real. Um, and it's mixtured with like a lot of females on the boat too, which I thought was pretty cool. In the very beginning, a couple guys get injured. They're all stressed out. There's a geologist on boat and he's like, we got to keep drilling. We got to keep drilling. And everybody's confused why they're drilling so deep. Of course, you know, there's somebody's up to something. You got Burke basically from Aliens here uh, or Ash or somebody, you know, that character, right? Who's more concerned about the, the scientific finds than anybody's life. They're in every one of these kind of movies we have one here in the geologist so essentially chad everett's concerned um then this guy has a premonition in the very beginning that something bad's going to happen and of course you know it's going to happen it's a horror film what happens is this creature jumps with the drilling it comes to the water pump and it looks kind of like a really low rent uh xenomorph but at the same time it looks more like that screaming little baby creature leech from class of Newcomb high that came out five years later uh before it grows so that thing uh, <laughs> it attacks this guy and bites him and he, and he dies and you're like he's going to the shock it maybe this thing's venomous they get it off the boat but there's some some rocks some strange rocks that have come up and uh basically these rocks you know anybody who touches them kind of gets infected and they kind of go mad so at the same time a bunch of people are going crazy instead of like we thinking there's going to be an alien we we have this kind of all these people going nuts on boats, people getting thrown overboard until the finale where we have, of course, this kind of like creature that style xenomorph or or something along the lines of scared to death, you know, just like a big juggernaut kind of creature uh, deal or like a, a, a zoonoid from Giver. And that, that's kind of the movie. Now, the first half of the movie established in characters and setting everything up is really cool, really fun. Uh, but it kind of loses steam, gets really dull, gets really repetitive. It's not anything that you haven't seen before. And it's not as good as Alien, of course. It's not as good as The Thing, which would come later. It's decent, decent sci-fi horror on a, on a like, off drill, like drilling, offshore drilling, which is a cool location, right? And the acting, I really like the lead. But for the most part, I mean, you could probably skip this one. Maybe just give it a peek. It's on YouTube. It's not horrible. I, I just don't see this making any top 10 list at all the intruder within then at a special time someone's finally gone too deep there's death here something's finally been awakened the intruder within followed by the democratic reply to the presidential address all right, now to follow up one alien ripoff with another. Now, this is from the Roger Corman school here from 1981. This is Galaxy of Terror. Um, I love Galaxy of Terror. I, I've watched this movie for years. Now, I've, I've talked about this one. Of course, it's got a great cast. James Cameron worked on here before he went on to direct Piranha 2 from 1981 and go on to do The Terminator and all these classic movies. But he worked on this one, and you can tell the production design's really great. Besides that, who directed this? Bruce Clark, who, who I don't know too much as a, as a director, to be honest. But the cast in here is top-notch um and mostly the supporting cast i mean you got sid Haig, you got robert england you got solomon king uh you got grace zabinski who else is in here i feel like i'm missing eddie albert is in here ray walston you got a great cast um so, so it's a really amazing cast. I feel like I'm missing like one other person. Oh, Aaron Warren. Uh, yeah. So, so basically a wonderful cast in here. And this is, uh, 
a strange thing. So uh, I, a group of people are looking for a distressed call alien, right? They, this, uh, people disappeared on this planet is from my understanding. They're sent there by the creator. In the very beginning of this movie, in the very end, it's very sci-fi. 100% sci-fi. The whole movie sci-fi, but it's more sci-fi fantasy instead of sci-fi horror. In the very beginning, we have the master whose face is illuminated by light constantly. And he tells these people, I handpicked this crew to go out there and try to find the survivors of this. Right when they get there, they kind of know something's wrong. Uh, people are picked off fairly quick. Um, and it's by all different creatures, all different ways. So you're like, is this galaxy is this planet basically a, a giant planet of different monsters or whatnot but it ends up being a planet that preys on people's fears which is funny because you know you got robert england in here and three years later after this he would be in nightmare on elm street uh somebody a uh, dream demon that uses people's fears in their dreams to kill them so this planet basically knows your deepest darkest fears and it uses them against them so you get an array of random ass fears including a giant cockroach uh, worms that come out of the walls, um, a giant uh, slug or maggot that rapes people, crystals, doppelgangers, and suffocation, no breathing, crushing, I guess, is what I'm looking for. You see, like that Papa, like that sly Papa Roach reference in there. But uh, yeah, so so you see what I'm saying? Like it's completely ridiculous in a lot of ways. And at the very ending, like uh, is is the, the last three minutes? I'm like, why though? Why? Why? Also, a shadow creature, which is really badass. So, uh, what I really like about this movie, besides the B movie cast, is you know the set design's great. I like everybody in here; it's really solid, and the gore. This thing is fucking gorier than I expected. Then I remember, to be honest, uh, you know, uh, and of course the the classic line of Sid Haig, I live and die by the crystals, which is fucking hilarious. Uh, yeah, this is a really entertaining movie. Like I said, um, the rape scene is is bonkers. They're like, we want we want to recreate that humanoids from the deep from the year before, where you get some more rape in here. But the rape is just like, what the fuck is this? But the uh, at the very end, of course, the character has to face off against everyone else's fears. But what are his fears then? Who knows? Who cares? Uh, but I, I really enjoyed this one. Great set design, great atmosphere, good gore, good monsters. Uh, a really fun movie on a budget. And the cover art, man. The cover art on this movie had always grabbed my attention. I think I, I forced, I let my grandpa rent this for me when I was a kid. Like, please, you gotta let me see this one. That cover art's amazing. It looks like classic Conan. Conan the Barbarian comics, the covers for him. But uh, I, I don't think the tape worked as a kid. Probably for the best, honestly. I was probably like eight or nine. But yeah, this is great. This is an old Blu-ray. I think they re-put re it out on a steelbook with a 4k which i didn't i will pick up but i'm waiting for a 4k of this at this point Civ so commentary with cast and crew new worlds producer roger corman screenwriter mark ziggler and director bruce d clark discuss the origins of the film the crew of the quest actors robert england sid hag uh tafat o'connell and grace sabinski discuss their experiences as crew members of the quest point of horse a detailed look into the creation of the film's memorable sets and alien landscapes future king memories of the co-production uh designer and future visionary filmmaker james cameron for members of the cast crew old school a journey into the um, complicated mechanical and makeup effects with artists Alan A. Apon, Douglas J. White, Alec Guinness, and others. Launch sequence. Co-editor R.J. Kaiser walks us through post-production and profile on the composer Barry Scheider. Um, yeah, this is great. Seeing the interviews with everybody is very fun. Uh, this, is, this is like amazing. Like All these special features on here for just like back in the day when Screen Factory would sell this for like 13 bucks. God, times have changed, right? Okay, another Scream Factory here, and another James Cameron joint, right? Uh, we just talked about Galaxy of Terror, which he worked on, but now we're going to talk about Piranha 2, The Spawning. 
So, okay, you know, I was looking at reviews on this, and everybody's like, that's the worst movie ever made. It's like, guys, if that wasn't directed by James Cameron, A, would you have watched it? Because we all like, most of us like these kind of B-movies that watch this stuff. Or B, are you holding it to a higher standard? And I heard somebody once say that, like, you know, the Spielberg, great movie, but, like, it'd be a great movie by anyone else, but since it's Spielberg, you know, people give it a two or a three out of five. Even though it'd be a four out of five or something from anyone else. And I wonder if people hold James Cameron to a certain, uh, certain like, caliber and i can understand why but i i tend not to do that when it's their first movie re-movie whatever and piranha 2 is a lot of fucking fun it's produced by ovidio uh, Santanatis or whatever i think i believe he's uh is he greek or italian i know he worked on a lot of italian films i believe he's italian or maybe he's a greek that lives in italian italy i don't not 100 but he would do beyond the door uh the ripoff of the exorcist and he also did madhouse from 1981 he directed he produced the visitor he is a bizarre character and uh his hands were all over this movie so and, and this is part of the reason i think james cameron disowned this one so what we have here in prana to the spawning is of course uh this kind of community or like this tourist location right think of every sea creature horror film or, or animals attacks movie you've ever seen we can't close down the beach we can't close down this park we can't close we're going to do that here too so remember the first movie the piranha got into the ocean i guess they're kind of leaving that a boat basically with a bunch of like these little eggs has crashed and that's essentially what's going on here. And these things are mutated. Now they can fucking fly. It doesn't get any more ridiculous than that. But you know what I love about this movie is this was made nowadays, it, you know, like Sharknado or something or Sharktopus or something like that. Although this movie is silly and weird and goofy, it's taking itself fairly serious. It's trying. The special effects are solid. It's entertaining. It's not like, hey, we fucking suck. Now maybe behind the set they're like, God, I can't believe I'm making Piranha 2 this spawning, but I, I'm going to do my best. And the, and the Sharknado, they're like, I can't believe we're making Sharknado. <laughs> Who gives a fuck? And I, I, I hate keep picking on Sharknado, but that's just how I feel. B-movies used to actually feel like real movies. Just because it's a B-movie doesn't mean it has to be bad, okay? And Piranha 2, now people are like, you're defending Piranha 2 by saying that. I enjoy it. I mean, like, the special effects are fun. The gore is fun. The characters are ridiculous. And, and although they're trying, even if they fail, you could tell that they tried, and it's enjoyable. Unlike Birdemic, which is trying, I think, question mark? But it's so poorly done that it just doesn't have anybody who knows what they're doing. So, like, this one, it's just essentially, Lance Hendrickson is a chief, of, he's like a cop on this one. And, of course, the piranhas start attacking, picking people off. They can go on land. His ex-wife, or his, yeah, his wife, his estranged wife, and her kid is there, too. They get caught up in it, so Lance Hendrickson's just trying to save everybody. There's another guy that's kind of courting Lance Hendrickson's wife, who's the main character. And he ends up being from, like, the old, like, place that worked on these kind of experiments. But there's some really fun, goofy moments. Like, there's these two girls that, like, trick this guy to bring him a bunch of food, and then they throw him in the water. And I was like, if they're going to kill this guy after treating him that poorly but they don't and i was like that's kind of a relief it's been years since i watched this but i always remember kind of enjoying it yeah it's stupid you know it's stupid but at least it's a, it's an honest attempt at trying and it's enjoyable gory silly sequel to piranha and i even like the remake of piranha i never saw piranha 3 double d but i did see the 95 remake tv remake of piranha and i remember being so so whatever you know so there's five piranha movies believe it or not but anyways i guess that uh ovidio uh, asantinus had a hand in finishing this like this uh, like a lot of the extra shots and changing some things around so we have new 2k scan new interviews with actors ricky pole golden and special effects artist brian wade which is cool because that's the kid actor in here he talks about you know 
a, a video shooting scenes for like an international version and there's like naked girls and stuff like that with him but anyways it's a fun movie it looks solid it sounds solid it's just a goofy fun b movie check it out okay speaking of video we got to go to this one made in georgia if I'm not mistaken, and this is Madhouse. This is an Arrow release. Um, this movie I love. This is the second birthday horror film of 1981, along with Happy Birthday to Me. Um, so Madhouse, that's an amazing cover art too. So a video directed this one. I just talked about a video of something. He also directed Tentacles. How could I forget Tentacles? But uh, yeah, this um, the music in here is by Riz Ortolani, and a lot of it is reused stuff from Cannibal Holocaust. So some of that stuff is like reused, the primitive stuff, but it's different too. And there's also like kind of a nursery rhyme theme to it. So I love the score in here. I actually really like this movie. I think this is kind of one of the hidden gems of 1981. Uh, so, and I covered this years back. Rewatching it, it went up a little bit. So what we have here is this, uh, I can't remember what her job is. Uh, she's basically a tutor to help uh, deaf kids learn. And her birthday's coming up. And her uh, uncle contacts her, um, and he's a priest, and he says, hey, listen, your twin sister really needs to see you. And she's dating this other, like, she's dating this, uh, she's married, I think married to this uh, uh, professor, this college professor who gives speeches, or doctor, I can't, he's a doctor. And the doctor's like, I never knew you had a twin sister, you never talk about her. It's like, because she traumatized me as a kid, we learned that they have this long, horrible history where this this uh, twin sister used to torture her with a dog, a pet dog, and all this kind of stuff. And the priest says, you, you should open up your heart to your sister, she really wants to see you, but I must warn you, she doesn't have long to live, she has a, a physical ailment that has scarred her, she no longer looks like you. And so she goes to visit her after all these years, and the sister grabs her, and she gives her the pet cemetery treatment, right? Just freaks her the fuck out, uh, and, and just says all these horrible things, like, our birthday's in a few days, and it's really terrifying. And then, uh, pretty quickly, she escapes from this mental hospital, and people in her life start ending up dead, and... Some of them are being attacked by a dog, this Rottweiler, which is awesome. So basically the killer is using a Rottweiler to do it. Uh, and a lot of the people are picked off here and there. It gets really dark. The score is like has this primitive, awesome thing about it. Like I said, it's, a, it's some reuses of Cannibal Holocaust, but it also has a new nursery rhyme kind of element to it as well. Rizzortolani kills it on the score. And I think the, the cast does a really good job, everybody involved. Uh, the, the priest in here is also excellent. I won't spoil everything here, but uh, there's, of course, a birthday party scene where everybody's invited kind of like happy birthday to me uh so so it shares similarities a lot of dna with happy birthday to me i think they're both really good though uh so uh it's gory too uh of course this made the video nasty list believe it or not i don't think rightfully so there's a couple scenes that are pretty rough but anyways madhouse is just great stuff and it, the whole movie takes place in kind of like uh, a big kind of like house that's broken up into all these different apartments not the whole movie but a big chunk of it that works really well but uh yeah it's just great stuff uh very very creepy uh very dark and the ending i love it's great stuff madhouse so special features are um you got commentary uh by hysteria continues and you also have subtitles and then you have running the madness a brand new interview with actress eden ivy framing Fear, brand new interview with cinematographer Rob, uh, Roberto Della Torre uh, Pizzazzoli, Ovidio Nasty, a brand new interview with producer-director Ovidio Adesantes, alternate opening titles. And you know what's cool about this is there's tons of these bizarre, weird, quirky characters that are around that work really well. So yeah, um, kind of reminds me of the Tenant in that aspect. I'm not the Tenant, uh, the Sentinel, or it could be the 
kind of either or is a weird kind of place with a bunch of quirky characters in a big building but uh madhouse great stuff okay next up is another one from 1981 and it's been years since i watched this movie and this is toby hooper's the fun house yeah so this is the 4k i picked up you know it's been so long since i watched fun house that i popped this and i was like i remember this being good don't remember it being great and i'm looking at everybody's ratings oh it's three two and a half three three and a half i'm like oh and there's a couple four four and a half so i'm like huh so i put this in and i start watching it and immediately i'm like I really like this. This is great. You know, so like, um, and watching it, you're like, yeah. So you like, obviously you watch Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2 and Eat Alive. And you're like, yeah, Rob Zombie definitely lifted a lot from Toby Hooper. It was definitely one of probably his favorite director. And then watching Funhouse, you're like, yeah, this is definitely something that Rob Zombie watched religiously, being like the Carnies aspect about this and all the, the Hooper styles. So like, it's very cool. So what we have here is there's this carnival, this traveling carnival that comes into town, and uh, basically this family, uh, this group of teens wants to go there. The dad tells them don't go. A younger brother kind of sneaks off to to follow a sister, and what happens is this group of kids witnesses something horrible. They witness a murder uh, from somebody that is mentally handicapped and physically deformed that kills this uh, prostitute. Well, not really a prostitute, but there's a prostitution thing going on here and kills her and they witness it and uh, they steal the money and they're trying to from these people and they're trying to escape from this carnival after it's closed down at night. But of course, the uh, the carnival Barker, who's the 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 foreign person's father and the deformed person are after them. There's some lot of really this is universal pictures, so they throw like a lot of universal imagery here. Like the the young little brother's like a monster kid. And he's a monster kid before the deadly spawn. He's a monster kid before, you know, uh Friday thirteenth part four, right? Like the posters on the wall, all that kind of shit. Like we kinda dale that back. A lot of people always give it credit to Friday thirteenth four, but there's ones way before that, right? Um so essentially, uh basically there's so much universal iconography, like a Frank, the, the, the mutated guys wearing a Frankenstein mask. You'll see the Wolfman poster, all that kind of stuff in the background, right? Um, but the carnival aspect here is wonderful. It, it, the circus aspect, all that stuff is good. Carnival aspect is perfect. Now, Kevin Conway is in here. And last week, I just talked about one good cop, and he plays the lieutenant. And he had the he stole the show in that movie, and he steals the show in this fucking movie too. Kevin Conway from Oz and from uh, you know a bunch of other films, he is tremendous in this movie. Now he plays three different roles, so there's three different kind of carnival barkers here. They all obviously must be related, but they all have different styles. One's like this tattoo, alive, alive, alive. Like he's great, and then we have like the main kind of guy who's the father of the the deformed uh, uh, monster, and then we have of course the uh, kind of like British sophisticated one, and the all different kind of barkers and everything and the opening of the movie they have this great shot that goes through and follows like a character walking through the carnival and they end that too like that so i was just like yes but it's just like you know like the movies like haunt or uh hellfest where you're running through the carnival and there's a killer after you this is like the, one of the first ones that i could think of and it's the best one to me like and the killer's terrifying the kids are picked off it's basically in a how like a uh uh like ghoulies 2 does the same thing where you're going through this like haunted attraction and there's monsters or a creature after you or a killer um the killer's terrifying looking you generally kind of feel sorry for him in a lot of aspects but he's scary at the same time and this also follows you know 81 had a lot of these 80 81 had these movies where you have like these kind of i don't want to say rudely but, you know, deformed or monstrous kind of killers who are human, but they're they're messed up looking. You know, Jason Voorhees made his appearance here as, as a grown killer. And you have Just Before Dawn, 
You have Hell Knight. I think Humongous came out the year after. And before that, you have other, like, deformed, like, kind of killers, like, and what was the one, uh, the Silent Scream in the basement? So, like, is it the Silent Scream? Or is it the uh, unseen? The unseen with the basement. So like the the, I, the the term was what they used back then. They would say mongoloid killer, right? Like that's the kind of term they would always use back here. And then you have Madman and Cropsy. It's just a year of deformed killers. A couple of years, 1980, 1982, there's just a million deformed killers out here. But uh, yo, I love this movie. Thought it was great. Thought the acting was great. Um, well done. Uh, well produced, well shot, well directed. Scores great. So people are always like, Hooper could never drug Poltergeist. Like, yes, I know. It's a lot like a Steve and Spielberg produced movie. But hey, all the other Spielberg produced movies are like that too. But this is a very capable, very well done movie. And I think this is great. Um, the kills are, are well crafted. The suspense is great. The acting's great. Uh, the location's great. I love this. It's way better than I fucking remembered. Uh, I will watch this again. I'll probably maybe watch it around Halloween again. But no, fun house. Loved it. Loved it. Great stuff. Man, Hooper. Every time I rewatch Hooper movies, they get better. You know, Hooper's creeping up on my top 50 favorite horror directors. I mean, like, I love Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2 and Eaten Alive and Funhouse. I like Life Force. I like Invaders from Mars. All those movies I like. Um, what else is, is it? You know, he doesn't have, like, a huge list of movies I love. But he has a good amount, right? A Poltergeist I also like. I mean, come on. He's a good director. So as far as the special features are concerned, we have a new 4K scan. Audio commentary with director Toby Hooper moderated by filmmaker Tim Sullivan. And then the Blu-ray disc. Now, I think you're saying, is it worth the upgrade? So we do the, the 4K scan is on the Blu-ray too. But we have new interviews, which I love seeing. So we have some new interviews with actors Miles Chaplin and Wayne Duba. Audio commentary Toby Hooper moderated by Tom Sullivan. The Barker Speaks interview with actor Kevin Conway, which I loved seeing an interview with him. He recently just passed, unfortunately, but he has a lot to say about this movie. And, like, during the movie, like, when he squares up to fight the one dude, like, I was like, oh, there's no doubt in my mind that Kevin Conway whooped this guy's ass. But then, like, you see him in the interview, he's like, he was a big guy. I probably, and he's just, like, so smart. And, like, he's just, like, that dude's such a real actor. You can tell he's, like, a big theater actor. But on the movie, I couldn't tell. I thought he was, like, this hard and tough guy for real. Um, said, sometimes something wicked this way comes. Interview with executive producer Mark Lester, Carnival Music interview with composer John Beale, audio interview with actor William Finley, who's also passed away, unfortunately. He has a great little scene in here. He's in Eaton Alive and Phantom of Paradise. Um, additional scenes added to network television broadcast version. So yeah, great stuff. Uh, loved it. Looked great too. Sounded great in 4K. Um, what is it? Uh, Dolby Vision. I think, what was it? A 5.1 mix on here? I can't remember, but I thought the sound was really good um, on here as well. Anyways, great stuff. We're going to follow up a classic director with another one here. And this is Deadly Blessing by Wes Craven. 1981, of course. You know, this is this is a shame. It's a blind spot for me. I never watched Deadly Blessing. Don't know why. And the trajectory of Wes Craven's career is very strange. Because we had, of course, Last House on the Left, 72. Hills Have Eyes, 77. There's a porno, I think, in between that. And then, of course, I think we had the TV movie, Summer of Fear, Invitation to Hell, if I'm not mistaken. And then 81, he has Deadly Blessing. After that, he has Swamp Thing in 82. And then he has Nightmare on Elm Street, 84. Hills Have Eyes, Part 2, 84. You know, kind of goes on and on. Um, so, so, like, it's just such a strange trajectory of career. And a lot of his movies were independent or TV movies, right? before Deadly Blessing. This looks like, and I don't mean any disrespect to Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes. I love those movies. I love the do-it-yourself, like, gritty. I love those movies. This seems like the first big professional movie he got. 
and it really does James Horner score. I was like, oh, wow. And the, and the cast, I mean, you got Ernest fucking Borgnine in here, who is one of my all-time favorite actors as a Mead Hydite. Hydite it's kind of like an extreme Amish person in the religious. You got Michael Berryman. You got Sharon Stone. You got a really solid cast here. And it takes place in this kind of like isolated religious community um, and, and some of the outsiders there. So the main character here is her and her husband, um, her husband was excommunicated from this group because he left and married and came back. And after he got this land, and, and Ernest Borgnine is the the, uh, the patriarchal figure of this religious community. It's really uptight. They don't use electricity. They're very strict religious community, and they shun people away who don't. Michael Berryman plays like this halfwit, kind of like slow man who's basically a child at heart. And in the very beginning of the movie, he is like harassing this woman, uh, this young girl, not super young, but girl. Um, it's probably like teenage girl about her painting calling her the incubus yada 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 chasing her and you think Barryman's just a weirdo this religious faction is strange and weird and, and basically th these people are on the outside of this community and this community is super weird and bizarre but before long of course, people start getting picked off. First, it's the husband, and some friends come to kind of help this this woman kind of get better. And then one is Sharon Stone. One of the girls starts to have her eye on one of the people of the community. But before long, more and more people are picked off, and there seems to be maybe a supernatural element to the film as well until the very end where you kind of realize there is or isn't, which I won't spoil, but it's completely fucking batshit ending where I was like, excuse me? I said, excuse me out loud, but I was like, that is bizarre. But, uh, you know, it, it has some of the Wes Craven stuff that we've grown to know. A lot of nightmares. The nightmares, uh, Sharon Stone's character has a lot of nightmares with a spider and stuff like that. And that's really well done. Uh, I like that. I think that the atmosphere and suspense is really good. And it's got a strange feel. It still has that carryover, like where it feels partially like a TV film from the 70s or something. Not a TV film, a 70s movie where it's like, you'll see some horrible murder. Then 10 minutes later, there's like a girl running and some kids chasing her. And it has like this little house on the prairie style music. And you're like, it definitely has that like tonal, I wouldn't say bad thing, but a, a 70s kind of tone to it. But, you know, it kind of carries over. Borgnine kills it. Four nine kills it in this movie. He is so good and so strict and so mean. It's like and his dialogue and he's like you serpent from hell. It's just great. And I remember I, I read uh, after Devil's Reign seventy six. Borg nine really didn't want to do any more horror movies, but. This is a horror film, but I don't know if anybody told you that. Uh, obviously, poor Ernest Borgnine's passed away, but he's just a, he's a tremendous actor. And Wes Craven talks in the commentary that he had a presence. He was a really cool guy, uh, and he had a presence. It was great working with him. Uh, Sharon Stone's solid in it. And you could kind of tell she's going to be a star in, in a lot of ways. There's some nudity in here. Of, girl, of course, girls getting in the shower, that kind of deal. Um, uh, put in because by the producers, according to West in the commentary, uh, they recreate or they. This is kind of where the Freddy glove, claw in the bathtub kind of originated from with a snake. So like you see a lot of the stuff here. Like uh, you know, Wes Craven has his Wes Cravenisms, and I love the fact that you know Wes Craven came from a very strict religious family, and this one he's kind of always gets a chance to like poke fun or kind of condemn that really religious strict uh you know family element you know where he's kind of and hills have eyes you feel like he's killing his strict like conservative family because <laughs> he you know growing up in that that life and then and like of course people under the stairs he's definitely making a comment on that kind of those rich kind of crazy people uh family there and this one i think he is too you know that kind of strict but at the end of this one 
there was some truth. There was some truth to these people. So I always like that kind of aspect, which kind of makes me feel like it, it doesn't feel Italian, but that's definitely something that would happen in a Spanish or Italian horror film where they condemn religion, but at the very end, religion still has like uh, some sort of like definite like hold of the reality in the film that it seems like it genuinely is right, partially which is weird but yeah so deadly blessing i enjoyed this i thought it was really good um and uh creepy so good stuff um i'm glad i watched it finally i love watching stuff i haven't watched so that's two um and i've watched a couple i really like from this year but i really loved uh for the first time uh dark knight of scarecrow and deadly blessing good stuff and revisiting funhouse was a treat so we have audio commentary by director wes craven interview with actress susan bruckner and writers glenn m Benist and matthew barr so Looks great, sounds great, have subtitles. Would recommend checking this one out. Loved it. Okay, next up is from another classic horror director, and that is Larry Cohen. This is Full Moon High. One of five werewolf movies question mark now i know a lot of people don't consider wolfen a, a werewolf movie from 1981 but you have the howling you have american werewolf in london you have night of the werewolf by paul nashi with paul nashi and then you have a wolfen which is if he you know i know it's native americans turning into wolves but and then you have full moon high directed by larry cullen and this is kind of in the vein of transylvania 6 5000 or 500 whatever you call it and that you know it's not really like it's a comedy first and then a horror movie it's a spoof it's got alan arkin's kid uh what is it? adam arkin uh who else is in here ed mcmahon is in here of course <laughs> that's right yes and he plays uh adam arkin's father so Adam Arkin is going on this business trip, and it takes place originally in what? The 50s? Uh, who's the president? Eisenhower. We jump over a bunch of time here. We have a bunch of different presidents, Eisenhower, JFK, and there's a nice shot where you kind of see the transition of time through the president's pictures on the walls. I like that. So it starts off in like the 50s kind of style America, right? I was a teenage werewolf kind of style setting, right? Um, where the America was very concerned about communist and all that kind of deal. So it's definitely making a statement on that, making taking some air out of it being very funny because Larry Cohen grew up around these times. He knows this kind of thing. And I think Joe Dante probably would have been fit better to direct this movie, to be honest. This feels more like a Joe Dante kind of style film. Um, but... It is what it is. So, uh, and Larry Cohen's a great director, a great filmmaker. So, I, I don't know, maybe because a lot of people hate this movie and they said it was the worst '81. I don't agree. I don't think it's a fucking masterpiece, but it's it's fun enough, right? It's fun. I've seen a lot of stupid, silly movies. The year before, Mama Dracula, unwatchable. This much better. Um, but we're talking full moon high here. So Adam Arkin is bitten by a werewolf on a business trip with his father. His father's trying to get laid. Um, that's all I bit man concerns himself with is stopping commies and having sex with random women. Adam Arkin is bitten by a werewolf, of course, and he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, then all of a sudden, all the cheerleaders in the town start getting their butts bit. Yes, it's that kind of movie. It's very silly. Uh, one day, uh, he starts to change into a werewolf. Ed McMahon is trying, thinking it's like testo a teen like kind of problems, t testosterone overlimit, whatever. And Ed McMahon ends up dead. Adam Arkin decides to skip town. And what happens is he comes back years later and like what now that it's modern times uh, and whatnot. And he is basically in the school. It's all wrecked down. He's going back to school. He plays as his kid. He plays as his, his kid, you know, and he comes back and tells everyone he's his kid. All the people from his old hometown from the 50s are still there. They're older now. They're a little confused. Some people still have feelings for him. All this kind of stuff here. There's a lot of dated gay jokes. There's like three or four, like three or four gay characters in here, three, two or three. They're just ridiculous. Of course, the coach who now is the principal is always trying to like grab ass kids in the shower. The the bus driver is also just a, a centric homosexual character. Just this kind of outdated humor that you would expect from the early 80s, right? 
Um, very silly, very spoofy kind of humor as well. Um, uh, Adam Arkin, Alan Arkin does come into the movie and he plays this kind of asshole doctor. He's pretty funny. Um, so the movie's just silly. It's goofy. It's light. It's broad. Is it great? No. Is there a couple laughs? Yes. Is it Larry Cohen's worst movie? Debatable. I know a lot of people really don't like Return to Salem's Lot. Uh, uh, but I don't know. It's probably comparable to Return to Salem's Lot. Uh, so so there we got to go. Full Moon High. Entertaining enough. I laughed a few times. I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's it's really silly, though. It, you'll know if you like this kind of stuff or not. Very light, goofy humor. Uh, special features cl- include audio commentary with director Larry Cohen, moderated by King Cohen filmmaker Steve Mitchell. So there we go. Okay, next up is the Patreon pick, and this is Bullet from 1968, directed by Peter Yates, um, starring Steve McQueen. This is a Steve McQueen pack right here. Bullet, Getaway, Cincinnati Kid. Steve McQueen, a classic actor, uh, died in 1980. Last movie was The Hunter. Uh, tragically died, too, of uh, cancer. But uh, he's, a, he's an American icon, right? The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, just in a slew of movies, The Getaway, of course. So he's just a great actor, uh, Papillon, Sand Pebbles, just a million movies, right? He's uh, uh, would have done a million more if he didn't die. But uh, Bullet is one of his most popular films, and he's a cop named Bullet, and he is assigned to protect this witness. This witness is going to turn over. Uh, he is uh, basically Robert Vaughn's primary witness here. Robert Vaughn also from Magnificent Seven, uh, Chud Two, Magnificent Seven. He was with Steve McQueen, so there we go, a connection there. And he's gonna he needs has this witness that needs protection uh, because there is uh, he's going to turn wit- uh, turn like evidence on this mob or something like that, and uh, his life is clearly at stake here. So Steve McQueen is basically in charge of this. Him and a couple other cops, and they're taking turns. One day, uh, while he's supposed to be watching him, somebody breaks in and it shoots this guy, messes him up really bad. And Steve McQueen starts to realize that something's not quite right, right? Something's fishy. Something's rotten in Denmark. And he starts to put two to two together and realize that somebody's not telling the truth. And he starts to kind of investigate this entire thing. Uh, This leads to one of the most famous uh, car chases around. It's really well shot. It's really well done. Steve McQueen's great in this. Steve McQueen's clever in this. He's, he's He's a movie star, right? Um, and they always make, they say things about Steve McQueen, basically saying he did so much, so little, he barely talked in the fucking movies. He, he cut a lot of his lines out, but yet he somehow always comes across magnificently. He's just got great screen presence. He's an action star too, at the same time. But you know, uh, and they, they talked about bullet recently on, uh, a Quentin Tarantino's new podcast. And like, if you ask what bolt was about, like people would just be like, I don't know. I don't remember what they just remember. They like it, but they don't remember what the fuck it's about. Right. But, uh, there's a couple other people in here. Norman fell is in here. Um, Simon Oakland is in here. Who else? I know I'm missing a couple of the big stars. Simon Oakland's great. He's in Psycho and The Hunting Party and Shadows Land. And um, Norman Fell is in fucking what is he? And he's he's mostly comedic, but this one he was a pretty serious actor, and I was kind of impressed by him here. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the cast was really solid as well. Um, and oh geez, uh, Don Gordon's in here from uh, The Borrower. So like, I love the cast in here. The the, the everything is good. The action's good. There's a lot of foot chasing, and it's way ahead of its time in terms of action and stuff. This would obviously lead to the getaway a couple years later by Peckinpah, which is also a great car chase in there. Lots of great car stunts, and and, and Steve McQueen did a lot of car shit and a lot of films like that. Uh, it's it's I don't have that much to say about it. Like, what do I say except that it's a really well done action movie with a really well uh, uh, casted film, and it's 
lot of twists and turns, and I didn't exactly expect what was going on. And it's not a huge story. It's pretty contained. You know what I mean? It's just like a few people here. I mean, there's a lot of there's a chase through an airport, which is amazing and really nerve wracking and kind of scary. But it just seems like really good procedural stuff, and the editing is unique for the time for sure. But what I really liked about this release was I ended up popping in. There was a feature length documentary about Steve McQueen. And you got to learn a lot about him, all these people talking about him, how he's a legend on screen and all these kind of things like that, and his film career and his life and his death and stuff. And you know what? I was reading also other things about McQueen. And McQueen, like, he's a hellraiser, man. It's interesting stuff. I I don't know if I – I guess I would have kind of guessed a little bit, but not to that extreme, right? But, uh, you know, it's it's really tragic that he died so young because, of course, we'd like to see him get in his old age and be in some more movies and just play a different roles. You know, they talk about he was in Tom Horn and some other stuff later on in his career. And he did some interesting stuff, like with Peckinpah, Junior Bonner is a really interesting role. Uh, that's a good Peckinpah movie, too. A rare, a rare non-action like kind of action movie. It's a drama, but it has like action and like the rodeo stuff. But it's a different kind of film. It's it's in the vein of a, a ballad, a cable hoag by Peckinpah. But anyways, uh, this is a great film. Like I said, not much to say about it, but I, I enjoyed it, and I would watch again for sure. I need to watch The Cincinnati Kid when I get a chance, so yeah. All right, let's get these questions, comments, concerns, uh, all that stuff. Uh, Martin VP, what an epic intro for 1981. Good job. Thank you. Uh, Tempo Tapas, good episode, Dave. I like the 1981 intro video. Thank you. Mike Moore, another great video as always, Dave. Had one of your first 100 videos pop up, so I watched it. And I got to say, S, uh, the VHS Voyage was a really cool segment. Would be cool if it returned. Just saying. Haha, <laughs> cheers, bro. Yeah, that would be cool. This is although, could understand with all the crazy releases the past few years, that might be damn near possible. But if you still have a small stack of VHS, just that never made it to disc would be pretty sweet to see them. Yeah, yeah, I just showed one, uh, Intruder Within. And then we have Stephen Hyde. He just puts a smiley face. Thank you. Uh, Ken Coakley, last Friday I stumbled upon a film I hadn't seen in almost 40 years. It was Meatballs 2, Part 2. It was directed by Ken, Shockwave's Weederhorn. The movie featured Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, and he was hilarious in the movie. Oh, wow. He's, he goes on, but man, I used to watch Meatballs 2 on television. So funny. Donald Gibbett, the very end, the alien. Who farted? Man, that movie's so silly. As an aside, I met Ken Wiederhorn at my local cinema for a midnight screening of Shockwaves, and he was really cool. He had a table after the movie and didn't stop, and I, and didn't stop until everyone got their merch signed. I couldn't come up with a pick for the worst of 81. I guess I would have to go with Piranha 2. They kind of lost me at Flying Fish. <laughs> I like it, like I just said. I actually liked Omen 3, The Final Conflict, as it got me into Sam Neill. It flashes of brilliance. I liked the way they filmed Damien's speech to his disciples of the watch, and I really liked the ending when Damien drops to his knees before Jesus and says, Nazarone, you, uh, Nazareth, or is it Nazarene? Nazarene, I would own. And you have won, nothing. Boy, talk about a sore loser, but the ending was spectacular. Being a Christian, I like seeing Jesus win handily. I also like the Rosano Brazi from Frankenstein's Castle Freak, as well as Ruby Wax from Shockwaves, as well as Don Gordon. Very cool. Love Don Gordon. Just talked about him from Bullet. Um, nope, here we go. Almost lost my thing there. Okay. Nick Bua. After another intriguing reveal, I'll probably put, pick up Graduation Day. It looks like a fun slice of 80s whore. The 1991 intro is the thing of beauty for sure. Do you have a wedding? Do you do wedding videos too, or do you prefer bloody divorce proceedings, sir? If you pay me, I'll make anything. Questions. Why do you think the 80s have such staying power? Why not the 20s, the 2000, the 20s, or I mean, think he means the 00s or the 90s? Um, I don't know. I think that possibly uh, the people making movies now or the people probably grew up in the 80s or it just was a special time in culture. I don't know. It, it 
the special effects were at an all-time high. The video stores were there. Kids don't really go to video stores anymore. I think video stores created nostalgia, but it's really hard to say. And you're around my age, so people have nostalgia for the 80s. Maybe people younger will have nostalgia for the 90s and so forth. I have a nostalgia for certain 90s things, so it's just age, I think. Have you seen any recent horror anthologies you liked, or is it subgenre dead and buried? Or is the subgenre dead and buried? Oh, I'm sure I did uh, off the top of my head. Um, some people like the new scare package. I only saw part one. I was fine with it. Jeez, uh, Mortuary Collection. Mortuary, yeah, it's on Shudder. That came out a couple years ago with uh, Clancy Brown. Great stuff. Made my top ten that year. And... Uh, uh, you said you'll be tackling every year of the 80s. Does that mean we'll see Mr. Parker in some vintage 80s wear? Garnish track sheets, shoulder pads, you'll be growing a mullet, right? Enjoy exploring all these movies from bygone era. I try to do the same as often as I can. We'll just do some shoulder dancing. That's the whole thing. I'll just shoulder dance when I do reviews. Uh, that's the 80s quintessential dance right there. So I guess we're going to hop into this update. All right, let's hop into this update. Got my vinegar syndrome order. So first up is the Flesh Merchant, and this is from Culture Shock. So I like what they're doing. This one looks pretty odd, as do all their titles, to be honest. Okay, yeah, it looks wild. Joe Estevez, Don Strau, Michelle Bauer. Ah, could be interesting. Joe Estevez, that's right. Next up, we have The Assassination of the Tazar. With uh, Malcolm McDowell, and this is what from Canadian uh, International Pictures or Deca De Def Crocodile. There's so many sub labels now that I'm starting to get confused by all of them. But I usually just kind of go through every month and see what sounds interesting and pick out a few that I definitely want to check out. Uh, you can't get them all now; it's just a lot. But uh, yeah, this looks interesting enough. This is the Canadian International Pictures one. This is Gina, which I actually had never really heard of. But uh, I guess something caught my fancy on this one. Uh, yeah. A film both human and brutal. Yeah, this one I remember it was a revenge flick. That's why I picked it up. So, Yeah, I usually go through and read them and then half the time they show up. I'm like, I don't remember what the hell this is. We have a first Vinegar Syndrome one up here. And this is, of course, a 4K upgrade of Primal Rage, an Italian killer weird bamboo movie monster thing. This movie's fucking bonkers. I covered this a while back. Uh, she'll bring out the beast in you. This is a weird film. Uh, this in 4K is just kind of mind-boggling, to be brutally honest, but I love the cover art here. Great stuff. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome was putting out the craziest 4Ks. I can't believe it. I do love it, though can't get enough it's gory and weird and bizarre and just silly i think a lot of people will dig that one next up we have uh shaolin invincibles from agfa and it also has what's the other one seven to one these are two kind of i think low budget martial arts flicks i don't know too much about i kind of dig the agfa stuff so i pick it up but uh yeah this looks fucking weird fighting a, a gorilla on there gotta love it right up next yeah. next up uh, this is what I've been meaning to watch uh, who put this out Fun City this is Breathless with Richard Gere yeah, it's a remake of the classic one uh, yeah never saw the original I know I know I know it's criminal right 
But yeah, heard good things about this one, actually. Definitely check this out when I get a chance. Then we have, uh, from Saturn's Core, Guilty Pleasures. They kind of specialize in SOV and low-budget cinema. One building, two women, a thousand screens. Pretty cool. Then right here we have uh, Freeway 2 Confessions of a Trick Baby on 4K. That's insane. I have the old uh, Blu-ray of this one, but yeah, we're, we're going 4K with this. Now we have both Freeway movies and 4K, which is really cool. The first one's great. I love the first one. The second one's wild, too, both by Matthew Bright. Uh, is this an extended version or something like that? I wonder if there's a different version of this one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I, I would definitely rewatch it. I prefer the first Freeway, though, for sure. Okay, finally, this bad boy came in. City of the Living Dead 4K from Cauldron Films. Love this movie. Great film. Finally in 4K. That back cover art is badass. Nobody's ever seen City of the Living Dead. I highly recommend you do it. 1980 classic. You have some stickers here. <laughs> Those are very cool. And you have a poster. I hope it's original Gates of Hell on there. And then you have a CD soundtrack by Fabio Frizzi. Uh, wonderful. I love this movie if you guys haven't realized that yet. One of my favorites. Long live Fulci. One of my all-time favorite directors. My second favorite. And then we have Calvaire, which is a great Belgium horror film. This director actually did three films. Uh, Fabrice De Wietz. Uh, De, what's his name? De Weiss. And uh, Calvaire is a great movie. Very crazy about this guy who's forced... Uh, I don't want to get into it, but he's. it's basically kind of... Uh, I guess you'd call it exploitation done in a Belgium French extreme style. But great movie. Great movie. Calvaire. Finally at a stateside Blu-ray from Yellowvale. We've been waiting for that one for a while. And then last but certainly not least, we have uh, Mexican Gothic, the films of Carlos Enrique uh, Tobolada, which um, has a movie on here I've been meaning to watch for years. So it has three films on here. Rapida, Darker Than Night, Poison for the Fairies. I've been meaning to watch Poison for the Fairies forever, from 86, I believe. Uh, but yeah, it's got a uh, nice booklet in here. It's got this double, uh, basically, thing here, the double case. you got the big case and you got an outside case. But three films in here. Very cool. I'm excited to watch Poison for the Fairies. But uh, yeah, that's the update. We're going to hop back to that video. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one.